Before we get started, I'd like to thank our essay colleague, Joseph Stancio, for recommending this article for the podcast. It's our first listener request. If you have an idea you'd like us to break down, email us at daniel at seekingalpha.com or mtaylor at seekingalpha.com or tweet us at at danielseekinga or at mbrooksTaylor with your suggested article. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful investment analysis. I'm Daniel Schwartzman, and with me today, as always, is Mike Taylor. We are looking at a groundbreaking biotechnology company that might be swallowed up by a bigger fish, and how it can be tricky to navigate the whims of merger and acquisition rumors in the pharmaceutical industry. First, some background and a disclosure. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Mike is long Gilead Sciences, one of the companies discussed on this podcast. I have no position in Gilead, and neither Mike nor I have any positions in any of the other companies discussed. Nothing on here should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Today's topic... BioSci Capital Partners wrote two articles a couple weeks ago about CRISPR therapeutics and why it is an attractive acquisition candidate for a larger company. Specifically, the author pointed at Gilead Sciences, the flagging biotech giant. CRISPR's technology entails groundbreaking gene editing techniques and could revolutionize science. Or it could be hype. The theme of today's episode is M&A in the pharma space is a total crapshoot. Mike, take it from here. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think M&A in pharma is a total crapshoot. Uh, it reminds me of the NFL draft in a way. Everyone has their okay. read and has their lineups and tries to value the different players, but ultimately you don't know what you're going to get after you sign your player. You can tilt the odds in your favor, but it's a really, really high risk, high variance type of activity. And I think that generates a lot of investor enthusiasm and people are looking at potential targets and trying to get the big payday that comes. The big pharma companies, the more mature companies like a Gilead, ticker symbol G-I-L-D, they have already hit the big time and made it big with some kind of success marketing a drug. The problem is they face a patent cliff where their intellectual property will eventually go stale, generic drugs will come in to replace their high profitability therapies that they're selling. So there's this constant need among big pharma companies to buy newer, hotter, more innovative technologies. What are big pharma companies best at? Are they drug development companies or are they drug marketing companies? And how does that affect the M&A characteristics for the industry? I think there's a bit of a spectrum there. And that's part of the problem with the business model of big pharma companies. For example, Gilead, just to take, and I'm long Gilead. Their initial success was in virology. Their first big hit was in HIV treatment. That's where they have had an edge, is navigating the regulatory terrain in viral treatments in particular. Having watched really closely their hepatitis C, their other, their second big hit. My thesis on Gilead when I bought them, basically, I went long in early to mid-June 2016, and I looked at Gilead, it was trading cheap on a PE basis, which a lot of people will make fun of me for that, but 
it was priced for zero growth. And I said, well, look, the cash flows from the hepatitis C franchise look really solid, and I could potentially just get a return of capital based on that. And then there are other assets in the pipeline in other therapies. So I viewed it as kind of like a bond with a call option on some other assets. I bought at a cost basis of around 86 a share. It is now below that, I believe, around 80. So I'm underwater. So my thesis has not played out yet. I also thought when I bought it that this would be a 10 to 20 year holding, certainly testing my patients all the time and testing the patients of a lot of investors. But one of the reasons for that is that the story has now shifted and will continue to shift. And I didn't take this into account when I invested in Gilead. Gilead has bought a company called Kite Therapeutics, which targets the same space as CRISPR technologies. We'll get back to CRISPR in a minute, but this is important background. Gilead is a big acquirer in the space. When they bought this new technology, I knew nothing about cancer therapeutics. And so now I had this whole new set of homework to do, which I had not done. And so I'm long a company that basically whose technology I no longer really understand and whose greatest potential I no longer really understand. And so that's a cautionary tale for investors, I think. If you're looking in this space, the ground is going to change underneath your feet a lot. They bought the company that produced the hep C drug. Is is that they bought Pharmaset in 2011, I think? That's right. So one of the things I liked about them was that they were effective capital allocators. They have a track record of buying undervalued assets in the market. Basically, my thesis was they know this technology really well. They know how to make good deals. They've had a couple of really big home runs. I think they can do it again. They've now built up scientific understanding, relationships with the Food and Drug Administration, and they have an edge in getting promising technologies to market. I think other companies are better potentially at sourcing internally. Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical division, is pretty famous for having really good internal R&D, or at least that's my perception. And other companies kind of exist somewhere on this spectrum of whether they're good at internally sourcing new scientific developments or they're good at finding attractive opportunities in the market. It's interesting because as a even less than a tourist in the biotech space and pharma space, I think of the other major story in the industry over the last five years, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which we've talked about before, ticker symbol VRX, which was a big platform play and roll up and this nonstop dynamo for so many years until all of a sudden the story changes. People realize there were tons of issues with it that we can't really go into. But one of the things that I think Valiant was trying to be was this aggregator of proven therapies in theory and this idea of we don't develop, we cut out all the R&D from our process, but we just buy the right drug and market it. And it, it was sort of a hedge fund model. And so when you talk about mm-hmm. Gilead, we've said a few things that they might be good at is that they might be good at nurturing the drug along to market just mm-hmm. in terms of the trial process or that they're good at capital allocation or you could be good at marketing the drug. Like It's interesting that there's so many yeah. things that a company in that space could be good at that would make them successful, which 
I think you could draw lots of analogies. Sports is a good one. I think you could draw that analogy of one company is good at coaching up their drugs. Yeah. One c- company is good at promoting their drugs. One company is good at actually starting the drugs from scratch. Right. I like that model. We're signing a free about. agent. Yeah. After the fact, it was very clear that Valiant had all these issues, but during its bull run up, it was not as clear. And I think that there is a gray area where I feel more confident about Gilead's ability in terms of identifying assets to buy. But at the end of the day, I'm making the same bet that Valiant investors made, which is that the company is an effective acquirer of assets. I mean, there's differences, you know, Gilead usually is buying things that have not hit market yet. Valiant was often buying things that had already hit the market or were very close to commercialization. Well, I think Gilead is probably a more effective operator or developer than Valiant might be. They still face the same challenges and many of the obstacles they face are the same. And I think I'd be deceiving myself if I were to say that Gilead was overwhelmingly exceptional to this kind of acquirer roll-up strategy. So I think you made a great point there, Daniel. Maybe we should get on into CRISPR now that we've kind of teed up the acquirer's perspective. Sure. CRISPR Therapeutics is focused on gene editing technology, a technology that many consider to be a breakthrough in the medical science world. The company was founded in 2013. Their main technologies target genetic blood disorders like beta, thalassemia, and sickle cell. And they're also involved in CAR-T therapies aimed at cancer. The company IPO'd in 2016, and like most new biotech companies, it has de minimis revenue and serious cash burn. It also has a lot of cash, and they just raised a bunch of cash in January. What I think is most interesting is that after doing little for most of its public career, the stock has doubled since December 21st with no clear news story. Like I said, the company raised money at 22.75 a share. The stock is trading at 42 now, so it's almost a double for anybody who invested in that offering. Most recently, Gilead's chief scientific officer and its chief executive officer both alluded to how gene editing as a technology would fit into its broader portfolio nicely. This happened on the company's Q4 earnings call, which was February 6th, right before the two articles we're going to discuss. So in in theory, that could be something that's going on here, but I think CRISPR made most of its move before February. So you can't really say that it was an A leads to B thing where people suddenly decided Gilead might be getting involved. But you see a lot of this in biotech, right? You see a lot of these big moves. The no obvious news, but maybe there's something that we overlooked there. It's just usually there's some proximate cause available, especially in clinical stage, sort of really high risk biotech stocks. There's some sort of catalyst you can point to. A company has got a, a trial date is coming up and maybe investors are trying to position themselves for the news that's coming up and so they may buy based on their assessment that the drug is going to advance and is more likely to hit the market and so the stock should be worth more. Or there's if there's a huge sell-off that, that's usually based on some new insight about maybe the drug has, has done poorly. Nothing obvious is just kind of wild to me. And we were talking before the podcast about, I, th- I think we should just stay on this for a second. The stock doubled in uh, toward the end of the year, and it's not clear why. And now 
after the fact, we're starting to put together pieces of a potential buyout story. But did something leak? Did some did some funds find some information or put this puzzle together ahead of time and no one said anything? I guess that's possible, but I think this just goes to show that buying these sort of clinical stage companies or these these companies that don't have any drugs to market, that don't have any tangible assets. If you're investing in these, you are running a crapshoot and you may sort of hit hit a big winner like the investors who, who saw this double move happen. But And you also have to be really honest with yourself about whether you can explain your understanding of the story. And this is really intricate, difficult gene editing technology. It's really at the very forefront of science. So I think a lot of people who might point to any kind of scientific explanation would have would have to really ask themselves whether there's they seriously understand the story. I think this is puzzling. I don't know what this means. And as an investor in Gilead, I should probably be a little bit concerned about the sudden dramatic move in price. So I don't know. I, to me, it's more like a wild ride than anything else. Kind of the market going, oh, hey, hey, look at you. You look kind of nice. And then, boom, stocks double. Crazy. Well, the pieces don't always add up because if the company is willing to sell shares at that given price, that's usually an indication that they don't have any offers on the table and that they're committing, right? They're committing to a longer yeah. period. And so it's interesting right. to me that CRISPR did this. And whenever something like this happens, and Seeking Alpha is pretty good about reporting any tangible news that is out there, we don't really have anything that explains this big move in January, especially. And so I tried to look at the filings to see if there's anything we're missing. And there's, you know, there's no big insider buys that we missed out on. There is Bayer, which is one of the B-A-Y-E-R, the German company. They, they, in America, we call that Bayer. Bayer. <laughs> Practicing by German, sorry. They, okay. <laughs> they purchased... They purchased some shares, I think, in the offering, and they are a more than 10% holder. Uh, interesting. I may be misreading the filings. They have a bunch of 13D and 13G amendments, and just scanning them, GlaxoSmithKline also amended one of their filings uh, okay. related to the offering. So there's. it's interesting that Dr. Tram points to Gilead, and partly based on a Seeking Alpha yeah. news report, because... GlaxoSmithKline is here, which I didn't realize until looking at it right now. Bayer is here. Celgene, I think, is involved somewhere in the mix. And Vertex is a partner of CRISPR and the source yeah. of their little revenue, the primary source of their little revenue. And so there's a lot of circling going on here. There's a lot of interest. Yeah. And so that's validating for CRISPR, and that could explain yeah. why the company is worth $2 billion without any revenue, without any clear business model that would lead them to fundamental financial valuations that investors could tie back the stock price to. But I don't know what changed in January, and so that's just what's interesting. Yeah, maybe well, maybe it's just a case of people that slow drip, finally people put the pieces of the puzzle together. Well, maybe it's just technology. the guesswork. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it can be. And I think that's another thing that we should focus on briefly. It goes back to this M&A and pharma being a total crapshoot thing. You know, in the early 2000s, 
stem cells were all the rage. You know, there was a lot of investor enthusiasm. There was a lot of scientific enthusiasm about this technology. Here we are almost 20 years later, and I wouldn't say that stem cells have failed to live up to their potential, but certainly the kinds of wild sci-fi fantasies that people entertained in the early 2000s have been tamped down somewhat. And so my point here is as relevant to CRISPR and to this gene editing technology is this is another new frontier for technology. And I think it's easy for the market's perception of these technologies to swing dramatically. And so certainly CRISPR or cancer immune therapy is subject to this wild range of different possible outcomes and different right. possible values for shareholders. And so it may simply be a small amount of information in the market's eyes because of how big this technology could be can lead to a giant revaluation in the technology, especially when there aren't other assets or there aren't other tangible things to look at. Not to say that the market's efficient here, but maybe that's the explanation is that there's kind of, if it's on kind of like a binary decision tree, if the market starts to decide that CRISPR is heading down the more attractive path, then suddenly bang, with almost no information, we have a sudden revaluation. Right. Comes back to it being a crapshoot. So let's but let's get into now, I think, the specific Gilead scenario that's sort of on the table here for this investment idea. So Gilead has made its bread and butter and become a large pharma stock based on its success in treating viral disease, HIV and hepatitis C. Effectively, they come up with more or less cures of viral disease, which was something that was unheard of in the 1990s, basically. They've now done it for two really, really large market diseases and really ugly diseases in HIV and hepatitis C. Since then, they've tried to branch into different areas. They've tried to branch into what looks like a giant market called NASH, which is basically a disease where your liver has too much fat. And I'm not a doctor, so don't hold me to that description. But basically, hep C is a liver disease. They're sticking with the liver for NASH. And then they also, they bought Kite, uh, which, right. is, which is in the cancer immunotherapy space. At this stage of the technology, companies seem to be trying to figure out how the different technology platforms fit together to actually get to market to get some kind of therapy or drug to patients and make money off of all of this. And so the context here for Gilead is that they bought one company that has these assets in the cancer immunotherapy space. They potentially need additional assets or to make additional deals to make this work as a business opportunity. And I think that's where we get into some of what Dr. Tran is looking at, who's BioSci Capital Partners, by the way. Right. So Dr. Tran is the, the lead analyst for BioSci Capital Partners. So he writes two articles. He writes an article on February 9th, I believe it's published on Seeking Alpha, and then another one comes out the following Monday, the 12th. And he lays out four criteria that are helpful guideposts for does it make sense for an acquisition to happen. There has to be some synergy is the first one. And so that's what you're alluding to with the CAR-T and how right. that fits exactly. in. That's Kite Farmer's technology and how that fits in with the gene editing. Then there's the acquirers usually seeking aggressive growth to fill in declining sales for a flagship product. Does that sound familiar to you, Mike? Yes. Yes. Good <laughs> Lord. Yeah. 
again, the I'm a bad investor segment, I'll be happy to put my Gilead position on the chopping block there. Hep C sales have declined faster than I think even the market priced in when I bought the stock. I bought the stock saying, hey, it's priced for no growth. I didn't think that negative growth was on the table, but it looks like it is. So yes, this is absolutely an important piece to the M&A puzzle. So what's number three? Number three is that the acquisition prospect tends to have at least one approved molecule with significant market potential, which I don't think we're there yet. CRISPR, yeah. But maybe that's where, because they have such a, it's not, it's a very dangerous word, both in the case of something like Valiant, but also in general in pharma, I think, is this idea of a platform of, we have a platform of gene editing technology that can apply to these blood diseases or blood disorders, but then can also apply to anything. Genes are the foundation of everything. And so if you can start editing genes, all of a sudden, you know, my basketball hopes become a lot more realistic as I get to grow more than fate has had me grow. And so that's sort of the, that's a huge, obviously, you can have a tail. (laughs) Oh man, that would be dangerous. Yeah. It's a gene editing. You can be hairier. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Gene editing technology is, (laughs) it's science fiction. I mean, that's sort of it. And that's, so you talked about stem cells and this was something that occurred to me most when reading about this was if you're the founder of something like gene editing technology, it's interesting to me that the dynamics from all sides, from the owner of that technology, you want to sell out when you might be able to change the world from the acquirer's perspective, because when do you actually know that this is worth paying for? When do you buy at the right time versus the stem cell hype that never played out? How do you handle that? And then the investor has the similar question. How do you decide when to enter? How do you decide what what the right outcome is, especially when you don't have a lot of say in it? But if you invested in CRISPR thinking that this was a foundational groundbreaking therapy for all sorts of diseases, you would probably be pretty disappointed if actually yeah. this January run-up was because news leaked and they get sold for $45 a share when it's at 42 right now. That would be a real letdown. And so I, yeah. I think that's different than when you're dealing with how to make a better package if you're a packaging company to pick on yeah, a right. boring industry. So anyway, so that's number three. And then the fourth criteria I think is a little bit self-fulfilling. The author makes the case that the offering price tends to be 50% higher. That's, I think, ipso facto. You need to pay more money than what the share is now. If it came out next week that they accepted an offer for 45, they could say, yeah, this was 100% higher than the average share price from November to December when we were discussing and then things leaked or whatever. And... To critique that point real quick, you're looking at the deals that got done, and you're neglecting the deals that didn't get done, I would assume. You want to not, you want to avoid that kind of bounded rationality when you're looking at things and make sure you're also accounting for companies that don't get acquired and what happens there. And I would guess that the rate of return is diminished pretty substantially if you, if you look at the full set of possibilities. I don't want to get too in the weeds on that because I didn't. I don't know how uh, Dr. Tran did that analysis, but that's that's one thing that you would at least for for listeners and for for ourselves, we want to be conscious of not looking just at things that go well. We want to look at the full set. So right. 
he does he does hit some of your beats in terms of what you look for in a case on an acquisition. He does make a standalone case, or at least alludes to it, to other work that he's done about why he's excited about the beta thalassemia therapy that CRISPR is developing. He refers to the partnership with Vertex, which he calls a leading innovator in this space, and how much that speaks volume about the lead molecule that he refers to. Then this was one of the ones that I think investors love to piece together clues like this in the process, but he talks about how the management team is streamlining. He writes that in the midst of what is seemingly a potential buyout, the company announced that the chief scientific officer is stepping down to serve as a senior advisor while a high-profile figure is taking his post. What do you make of a statement like that in an article or in any speculation about a buyout? Two things, just because I've seen this so much in on Seeking Alpha and just in investment ideas in general, I think these two elements you mentioned, the partnership and management changes, are really, I compare it to Mystique, the villain in the X-Men. In one of the movies, she's trying to seduce Wolverine and get him to stop being obsessed with Jean Grey and join the bad guys. And I think they're in a tent together, but anyway... And she was like, you know, hey, hey, Wolverine, I, I can be whatever you want. And she shapeshifts into like three or four different super hot days. And of course, Wolverine is too good of a guy to fall for any of that shapeshifting stuff. So the movie goes on from there. But but this kind of news, partnership news and M&A news is kind of like mystique shapeshifting, trying to seduce Wolverine in the sense that you're likely to see what you want to see in the news or the news can kind of be presented in a way that's appealing to investors, whatever their thesis is. So for partnerships, a lot of preclinical biotechs have partnerships as kind of a lifeline to help them get to market. So although a partnership is good, it doesn't necessarily speak to the intrinsic value of the investment. A partnership is just another form of financing most of the time. So it's people, I think, make the mistake of seeing that as this major operational advantage when it's often just another way for a company to try and get over the hurdles it needs to get to. And with management streamlining or management changes, I mean, I've seen, you know, Mankind, which was a battleground stock, uh, Arena Pharmaceuticals, a battleground stock, all these sort of preclinical biotech companies. Management changes can happen for any reason, including that the person was not competent, that they were not a personality fit, that uh, they had a different vision for the company, anything. And, And if you read the announcement that CRISPR made, they just say, Bill Lundberg, MD, is stepping down as chief scientific officer of CRISPR. He will serve as a senior advisor to the company. And then it's, quote, I've, you know, the quote basically says, I'd, this, it was a wonderful experience working for the company. We've done a lot of great stuff. And then the CEO says Bill was great. From an analytical perspective, can you take that news announcement and, and then jump to some conclusion about the, where the company is going? I think we're back with Mystique in the tent with Wolverine there. It's not, it's, it's like shape-shifting to like whatever you, whatever you kind of want, baby. And so I, I'm cautious about that, and I see it a lot in articles, so I, I want to call it out as something that if you're going to use that as an argument, then there should be more to it than that. Potentially something like 
there's something specific about the background of the partner company or something specific about the background of management that makes this bullish. But on its face, no, it doesn't do much for me. You know that it's a bad sign when somebody leaves the company and you don't have those puffery quotes, right? You, if, if they just say, Bill Lundmerg, step down, see you later. Resigned in disgrace. Yeah, yeah. Some management changes are bad and obviously bad on their face. But I don't think this qualifies as that or obviously good. Right. So the one thing BioSci Capital Partners does mention that study of M&A is a low-yield endeavor. There are high risks it won't happen. There is also the risk that the molecule they like won't post positive data in future trials. And so there's certainly some caution as far as how the author presents the case. But... There are there is some reading of clues and you've you've sort of given your verdict. It sounds like you're not buying. If if we want to if we're going pharma M and A is total guesswork. It sounds like to you. Am I reading too much to say that you're you're skeptical that this is going to be a, the story? Yes and no. I'll try and I'll try and put a put a cap on this. I continue to believe that biopharma M and A is a total crapshoot. I think that we see it in retrospect. It seems obvious. It's not obvious in advance. Like you said at the beginning of the show, if we had a recipe for finding these M&A targets, we would certainly exploit that in the market by going long companies that were about to be acquired for a premium. That said, I don't want to throw out CRISPR itself totally. Look, to the extent that I understand investing, it's from a sort of value-driven perspective, bottom-up fundamentals, financial statement analysis. You can't really apply that type of framework to these novel technology companies, especially when they don't have anything to market. And it's interesting that CRISPR's investor presentation doesn't really describe a business model. They're focused on the technology itself, developing the technology, and this just world of potential that exists if they ever get there. So my value perspective doesn't really work. I think it either doesn't apply or says stay away from this company because the balance sheet and the income statement don't tell me enough good things for me to look at it. But I believe in investing in small bets on potentially world-changing technologies. I think that that was part of my idea in my Gilead investment, which we could say is not worked out great for me so far but that Gilead brought a new treatment paradigm. They were able to destroy viruses and cure viral disease. That was new, and it's new from a business model perspective in that they sell cures instead of treatments that drag you on forever and ever, and it's new in terms of just creating value for humanity. So I, I wouldn't leave, I'm not gonna totally ignore CRISPR therapeutics. I'm trying to teach myself to try and have a, section of my portfolio that consists of small bets on potential world cheaters, because I think that ultimately we do have to look at our capitalist infrastructure as aiming at innovation and aiming at new things, not just looking for sort of vulture opportunities to buy things when they're cheap. On the M&A story, it, it could, you know, Gilead bought Kite. The therapies are, you know, the technologies are theoretically complementary. I don't see how you get to CAR-T without having a really robust infrastructure around gene editing. Cancer immunotherapy involves editing T-cells. And so 
I won't say it totally doesn't make sense to me. I don't think that the M&A angle is why I would be looking at this company, though. Let me come to you with a proposal, with a cocktail, if you will, of <laughs> gene editing companies. The three gene editing companies edit Entella and Crisp, and two of those three have ticker symbols that refer to gene editing in some way. So that's always fun when you have that synergy between ticker and what you do as a company. Ticker synergy, yeah. Their combined market cap is 4.6 million, and they have between them about 800 million in cash on the balance sheet. Gilead bought Kite Pharma for about 12 billion. Imagine that Gilead paid 100% premium on those three companies, and so that they end up paying 9.2 billion for them. They get $800 million in cash back. They own the three leading players in the gene editing space. If I come to you and say, you have an in as a Gilead shareholder, you have an in to the board to make that proposal. Are you going to the board? Are you telling them, look, guys, buy all three, own the space, own the future? Is that interesting to you? Huh. I didn't think that, that's not where I thought you were going, but, but I think I would, I would go to the board meeting and they would be like, yeah, that sounds great, Mike. Can you explain what cancer immunotherapy is? And I would be like, oh, yeah, they take your blood cells and they uh, they edit the genes. And then all of a sudden the blood cells can find the cancer. And uh, simple, you know, like I don't. don't, uh, So they wouldn't listen to me. Right. And I'm not confident enough in my knowledge of what Gilead has bought in Kite to know what the synergies are there between that technology and these other available technologies. That said, though, we've had Seeking Alpha authors in the past pitch a kind of diversified strategy where they want to be exposed to the entire technological space. And there's actually an ETF created by Brad Lonkar, who's a well-liked and popular biotechnology blogger and a private investor. The ticker symbol, if you want to talk about ticker synergy, is CNCR. I haven't done much homework on that, and uh, but I do want to point out that this is a viable strategy that some people are trying, or whether it's viable or not, people are trying this. They're trying to get diversified exposure to big technological trends. And a basket approach, yeah. Yeah, I think that's valid. And would I want Gilead to go further in this direction? Gilead's got to do something. Like I said, they throw me out of the board meeting faster than Mystique can turn back into Rebecca Romaine. But I, I buy that strategy, especially if you're an investor like me who doesn't have any edge in terms of understanding the science. If you believe in the technology overall or the trend is going that way, I, that is a potential risk mitigator against some of these companies going to zero. I think that's a way to look at it, and I, I kind of like that approach, Daniel, that you've outlined of looking at what the upside case and the downside case could be and then putting your eggs in a lot of different baskets. Prehensile yeah, tails for everybody. Yeah, tails for everyone, hair for everyone. Monkey screaming for everybody, bananas everywhere, would be great, would be fantastic. But I think that goes back to if, maybe that's our, let's have an Aesop moral to the story, the monkey and the CRISPR fable. If M&A Pharma, if Pharma M&A is total guesswork, then maybe it makes sense to manage the risk and have some kind of framework overlaid, maybe a basket approach, maybe something else. 
but if you're going to play in the space where there's high upside but a lot of downside also, then maybe it's it's worth exploring some kind of strategy that gives you at least some tiny measure of diversification or that allows you to be exposed to at least, you don't know who the winner is going to be, so own all of them. That's a potential lesson here. I would just add that BioSci Capital Partners, to their credit, whether or not we agree with their criteria, Dr. Tran and his team has criteria, has a framework for how it right. identify. It's up to you to identify the right plan and then assuming the plan is reasonable to execute on it properly and to adjust it as needed. But he does have a plan. They do have a plan. And so within that framework and within the recent Gilead comments, I'm a little skeptical of reading too deeply into a company name dropping a technology they're interested in just because it seems dumb from Gilead's perspective to let leak that they're interested in gene editing technologies. That doesn't right. help them buy something for cheap. I'll point out quickly that one commenter mentioned that Bayer seems to be the more likely acquirer given how much they already own of CRISPR. CRISPR, by the way, is based in Switzerland. Bayer is either based in Switzerland or Germany, so that might make things marginally simpler. And then, you know, there could be other acquirers, but I think what we have here is we have a decent framework from BioSci Capital Partners. We have an interesting story, one that could become the next stem cells in the sense that it could be disappointing and it could not play out. But it's exciting. It is dangerous to associate the investments you make as a secondary minority shareholder who has little to no say and whose money isn't actually getting to the company or fueling their efforts. It can be dangerous, I think, I've observed over the time at Seeking Alpha, to associate yourself with the story and to think, mm -hmm. I am going to help revolutionize the world by investing in CRISPR or in any biotech company. I think biotech companies are especially prone to this. Diseases are something that affect most people's lives, whether directly or through family. And so everybody wants to be a hero, but I don't think your investment portfolio is the best place to be a hero. Right. But I think your point of being open to growth, being open to game-changing technologies, being open to exposing oneself to potential, whether through a basket approach, whether through this criteria mm -hmm. of identifying acquisition targets, is a way to take out the guesswork to some degree. At the same time, you have to be aware that in pharma, especially, but in general, I think M&A is a crapshoot. It is guesswork. It is luck of the draw, and you have to be cognizant of that and be measuring out your risk in some form. And so yeah, I think with the plan, we've talked around that in a couple ways. Be like Wolverine. Be a hero like Wolverine. <laughs> Don't fall for the mystique. Don't fall for the mystique. Don't tie yourself in too close with the technology. Don't read the tea leaves. Have a plan. Wolverine had a plan. You should have a plan, too. He also had a lot of hair. I don't think he has a tail. No tail. No tail. Okay, we're done. That's it. That's, okay, that's where we're signing off. All right. Good talk, Mike. See you out there. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.
some orange pen, a big straw hat, and a liquid orange suntan. Cool himself off with a Japanese hand fan. Motion for silence, and then he began, he said. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. If you have a chance to leave us a review or a rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Tweet us at DanielSeekinga or at mbrookstaylor with any subject requests or feedback. Or email us at daniel at seekingalpha.com or mtaylor at seekingalpha.com. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks again and see you next time on Behind the Idea.